Father, it is your will to restore and perfect all things through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have made promises that fill us with hope and expectation. We thank you that you sent your Son to fulfill these promises, to begin your work of redemption, and that he will come again at the last day to complete that work. We ask you, O Lord Jesus, to come to us this day, to come and meet us and speak to us through your word. And come and feed us at your table. O Lord Christ, make your kingdom come. Show your glory to the nations. Come in judgment against your enemy. And come in blessing for your people. O come, Lord Jesus, for you are our King, our Savior, our hope, our life. In you we put all our trust. From your miraculous conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary to your birth in the manger to your baptism and temptation to your trial and cross to your resurrection, ascension, and final return. You are the one in whom we hope and we rejoice in knowing those who hope in you will never be put to shame. O Word made flesh, O eternal Son of the Father, now united to human flesh, O crucified and risen One, You are worthy of all praise and adoration, all acclaim and honor yesterday, today, and forever with your Father and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. I also want to read from Acts chapter 20, verse 35, uh, a verse with a saying of Jesus that really could be uh, treated as a summary of everything else we've read from Scripture uh, this morning. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would give to us now that we might give to others. Father, we pray that even as you are a giving God, that we might learn to be a giving people, that our giving might be an echo of your giving. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The Advent and Christmas season, of course, is a time of giving. We make Christmas lists, we count shopping days, we look for sales, we give year-end gifts to charities. It's a season of giving. We give gifts because this is the time of year we most especially celebrate God's ultimate gift to us, the promised gift of gifts, the gift of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. At Christmas, we celebrate God's giving to us by giving to one another. So just as God has given us the gift of His Son, we remind one another of that by giving gifts to one another. Gift giving is a God-like action. God is a giver. He is the original giver, the ultimate giver. Paul ends the section we read in 2 Corinthians in 9.15. He ends that whole section by saying, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And what is this indescribable gift? It is the gift of Christ Himself. And because God is a giver, we should be givers as well. Yes, giving does characterize the Advent and Christmas season. It's why many consider this to be the best time of the year. But I think we'd all agree that Christians should be givers year-round. This is not just a seasonal virtue. It is, or at least should be, a regular, consistent feature of the Christian life. Because we have a generous God, 
we should be a generous people. And indeed, when we give to one another, we participate in God's own grace of giving. We become agents of God's giving so that God is giving his gifts through our giving. We become a delivery mechanism, as it were, for God's own gifts that he wants to distribute. In these two chapters in 2 Corinthians that we've read this morning, Paul gives us a very insightful and comprehensive look into Christian generosity. This is the anatomy of a generous church. This passage has far more in it than we can uh, even begin to uh, scratch the surface of this morning, but there are several key things here that can help us. Let me give you a little bit of background here. This is not just Paul sneaking in a sort of fundraising appeal in the midst of a letter that deals with all kinds of other things. No, this is actually Paul unpacking the implications of the gospel in a central area of life. And in these chapters, Paul shows how joyful generosity to the saints is an expression of the grace of the gospel. This passage on the surface seems to be about money, but when you drill down into it, you find it's really about grace. These chapters show us what generosity is all about, what generosity is, what motivates generosity, what follows from generosity. It shows us the bedrock of Christian generosity, the bedrock of the Christian virtue of generosity found in the grace of God. Here's the context for what Paul is talking about. If you don't understand this, some of the things he says may not make a lot of sense. Paul is taking up a collection from the predominantly Gentile churches that he has planted uh, all across the Mediterranean area. And the collection will be given to the predominantly Jewish church in Jerusalem. So the Jewish Christians down in Jerusalem are being persecuted. They are poverty stricken. They need help. These Gentile Christians in other areas have got the resources to help. And so Paul is trying to connect them and bring them together. And this collection is a major feature of Paul's apostolic career. Uh, This collection is a major theme in several of Paul's letters. It pops up in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. I think you see it perhaps alluded to or uh, previewed in uh, Galatians. It's certainly prominent in the book of Acts. Its importance to the apostolic church cannot be underestimated. Paul is very concerned about this collection. And Paul wants to complete this collection soon, and that includes gathering up the Corinthians' gift when he and his associates pass through. His associates, of course, will help him to deliver the gift in Judea, and their presence, in a sense, ensures the integrity of the gift, protects the gift from any kind of corruption. Paul's going to be coming through Corinth soon. He wants to gather up the gift, so he's telling the Corinthians to get it ready. This special offering is given several different names here. Uh, in these two chapters. It's called a grace in several places. It's called a collection, of course. It's called a blessing. It's called a sacrifice or an act of priestly service. Liturgical language is used for it. It's called a fellowship or a partnership. It's called a ministry or an act of service. It's called a test of love. And it's called a proof of their confession. This offering, it's got so many different names because it is of such great importance. It is of immense importance to Paul and to the New Testament. Both theologically and practically, it's vital. So we want to look at four themes here this morning. The grace of generosity, the model of generosity, the fellowship of generosity, and the joy of generosity. Let's look at each one of these. Let's start with the grace of generosity. 
If there is a key term in these two chapters in 2 Corinthians, it is that word grace. Chapter 8, verse 1, you see it right out of the gate. God bestowed grace on the churches of Macedonia. In what way did God bestow grace upon them? In leading them to give extravagantly to the cause of Paul's special offering. This is how the grace of God was manifest. Their giving was given to them by God. God was gracious to them by giving them a spirit of generosity. God gives to us the gift of participating in his own gift giving. By giving to others, we share in God's own giving. And that's what the Macedonians are doing. That's why their participation in in what they gave was actually something they received. The gift they gave was actually something they received from God. The grace that God has given, that has been given to the Macedonian Churches, that's described in verse 1, is really unpacked for us in verses verses 2 through 5. Paul shows they gave out of their poverty and affliction. This was a church going through great trial as well, but still they wanted to give to the Jewish Christians who were suffering. They didn't have much, but they gave anyway, according to their ability and even beyond their ability. God had given to them freely, and so freely they would give to others. They were not being manipulated or coerced into giving. They gave because they were eager to give. Paul says the Macedonians even begged to to give. They're saying, Paul, here, please take our gift. The Macedonians had received grace from the Lord, and so they gave. They gave. Paul says in verse 5, they gave themselves to the Lord and then to us. They gave themselves in service to the Lord and then they gave themselves to Paul and his apostles in service as well by participating in this collection. And you see this again and again here and elsewhere in Scripture. Those who receive from God become givers themselves. Grace begets grace. We find in verse 6, Paul wants the Corinthians to excel in giving in the same way. He wants this same grace to be complete or fulfilled in them as well. Again, we see God's grace to us makes us givers. Paul is describing here the gift of giving. We think of giving as giving. We're the ones who give, right? But for Paul, when you give, it's actually God who is giving to you. It's the gift of giving. When we give generously, Paul is showing us, it is because God has put it in our hearts to do so. This kind of generosity Paul is describing here is not of human origin. Their willingness to give was given to them. And this is just part of Paul's whole theology of grace. Everything comes from God. Not just everything we have that we, all all the material blessings that we have, our money and homes and so forth. Everything we have comes from God. Our faith comes from God, our repentance, our obedience, even our generosity. Even the virtue of generosity is a gift God gives to us. These are the fruits of God's grace at work in our lives. God gives to us so we can share with others. Paul is showing here only the grace of God can account for the kind of generosity the Macedonians have been showing. They were poor themselves, but they became rich in generosity. Paul says in verse 8 that this generosity was really a test of love. And the Macedonians passed the test. They loved to love. They were eager to give. But Paul says it's also really a test of grace. You could say generous giving as a way of life is proof 
that you have received the grace of God. It's a test. You know you've received grace when you give graciously. You know God's been generous to you when you give generously. It means you're filled to overflowing with God's grace. Generosity with money or with time or with your home is a way of expressing the grace of God to others. It shows you are participating in God's economy of grace. And as you give away money or time or other possessions, you are drawing others in so they too can taste the grace of God and share in God's grace as well. And again, Paul wants the Corinthians to become like the Macedonians. He wants wants the Corinthians to share in this same grace of giving. This gift of giving gifts. God is the giver. A spirit of giving comes from God. Chapter 8, verse 16 is another example of this, another illustration of this. Paul says, thanks be to God who put the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus. So Titus's care for the Corinthians. Titus is going to give himself to the Corinthians in ministry. Why? Because God put it in his heart to do so. God made Titus a giver. He made Titus generous in this way. Every time Paul sees an act of of generosity or an act of kindness, he traces it back to the grace of God. He doesn't so much thank the person, he thanks the God who led them to do it. God's grace, God's giving to Titus made Titus a giver. Pressing further through the passage, we find the same thing in chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you that having sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work. These words like abound in all and every and sufficient, they're just words that Paul's piling up to show the greatness of God's grace, to show the magnificence, the magnitude of God's grace. Paul's saying here, look, All of our good works are made possible by God's grace. They're secured and produced by God's grace. Our good works are worked in us by God. You could not do these things on your own. It's God's grace that is making you a giving, gracious person in this way. We can give to others because God gives to us the gift of giving. Paul speaks of all grace abounding so we can abound in every good work. It's all grace. It's grace abounding in our lives that makes us live this way. God is love. And it is the very nature of love to give. Love is outgoing. Love is outflowing in the very nature of the case. Love goes out from itself towards the other in service. And that's what we see here. It is true, you can give without loving. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, where he says, if I, you know, in the famous love poem, he says, if I give away all that I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's possible to give everything away without love. You can give for all the wrong reasons and forfeit your reward. You can give without loving if you're mismotivated. But Paul's showing us here, you cannot love without giving. You can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. If you love, you will give. You cannot receive grace without giving graciously. If you have received grace from God, you will give to others in turn. Freely you have received, freely give, as the Scriptures teach us. 
And that brings us really to the model of generosity. We see that generosity has its source in the grace of God. God gives us the gift of giving. But then in this passage, Paul also gives us a model of generosity. Actually, multiple models of generosity. Certainly, Paul is setting forward the Macedonians as an example for the Corinthians. We have seen that already. Their eagerness and their willingness to give, even though they did not have very much, is simply astounding. This is an example of astonishing generosity. Sometimes we think, oh, generosity is only for those who have great wealth. But this passage shows us, no, even those with little to give can still give. In fact, so often it is those with less who give more. Statistics bear this out. At least in in American society, it's this way. Arthur Brooks wrote a book about this uh, a few years back where he did studies on generosity patterns in America and he found that the poorer states in America were actually the most generous. Mississippi was actually the consistently most generous state even though it is one of the poorest. And Massachusetts, even though it's one of the wealthiest states, certainly far wealthier than Mississippi, was one of the least generous states. The Macedonians proved just about anyone can find a way to be generous. The issue really is not the quantity of the gift. It's the quality of the gift. It's not the size of the gift. It's the motivation and the goal of the gift that matters most. But the ultimate example of generosity here, of course, is not the Macedonians. It's Jesus himself. There is no greater giver than than Jesus. No greater model or pattern of generosity than Jesus himself. Paul points to this pattern in chapter 8, verse 9. And here Paul shows us, it really compacts the whole ministry of Jesus into just a few words. Paul shows us the whole sweep of Christ's career from becoming incarnate and his birth into the world all the way through his death on the cross. It is one big act of generosity. The whole life of Jesus from his incarnation through his death is one big act of cosmic generosity. This is how Paul describes it. He says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. It is the paradox of the gospel Christ impoverishing himself in order to enrich those who are poor. Of course, rich and poor here are not being used uh, in an economic sense. They're not economic terms here. They don't describe Jesus' financial status so much as they describe the result of his humility and sacrifice. His poverty is found in what he was willing to give up, ultimately giving up himself. And the riches, of course, are found in all the blessings, the salvation he brings to his people. Jesus was rich. He dwelt with his Father from all eternity in the glory of the Trinity. He dwelt in the splendor and peace of heaven. But in a sense, he left that glory. He gave that glory up. He came to earth and entered our humanity, taking to himself a man's nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary and entering our history at a specific time and place, being born in the lowliest condition possible, being laid in a manger. And as he lived, of course, he had no place to lay his head. And then he died unjustly, falsely accused, stripped naked and nailed, to a tree. Why? All for our sakes. 
Jesus is our ultimate neighbor, our ultimate good Samaritan who has rescued us at infinite personal cost. We were bought with the price of His blood. His pain, His agony, His suffering, His sweat and His tears. This is how our salvation has been purchased. With the priceless gift of Christ Himself. Giving Himself for us to cancel our debts and bring us to God. This is the paradox of the Gospel. Christ who is rich impoverished Himself so that we who are poor might be made rich. He impoverished Himself to enrich us. He gave His life so we who were dead might have life. He emptied Himself so that we might be filled. He became a servant in order to make us kings. He left glory so we might enter glory. He went through shame so we might be exalted. He was condemned so that we might be acquitted. He gave so that we might receive. He was abandoned by all so we could enter into fellowship and communion. He was stripped naked so that we might be clothed with righteousness. This is the great exchange of the Gospel. Jesus did not clutch to what He had. He did not cling to His heavenly riches. But He freely gave everything up to save us. To bring us to glory. To bring us to God. To bring us spiritual riches. Every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now there is no act of giving on your part that can replicate this. No act of giving on your part that can do what Jesus did for others, much less for the whole world. What Jesus did is utterly unique. It cannot be repeated. It cannot be duplicated. It cannot be copied in a full sense. But Jesus does give us a pattern. A pattern of life. A pattern we can replay in much smaller ways in our lives each day. And so we're called to take up our crosses, to conform ourselves to Christ's example, to grow in Christ's likeness, to love the way Christ has loved, to sacrifice for others, to impoverish ourselves in certain ways so others might be enriched. Christ gave all. He gave infinitely more than you or I have to give. And so you and I can't match His giving. But we can in certain ways imitate His giving. We can, in small ways each day, imitate His giving. You can give to the people in your life a little taste of the Gospel by giving generously when you see needs around you. Giving of your money, of your time, of your talents, opening your home. I have a, a friend uh, who became a Christian towards the end of high school. And he was actually kind of hesitant to tell his family he had become a Christian. He didn't know how they would react. He didn't even really think they'd know what that meant for him to become a Christian. So he was trying to figure out how he was going to let his family know. Uh, his younger sister had just turned 16, and she promptly wrecked the family car. And um, the parents were going to make her pay for it. And one night at dinner, uh, Jamie pulled out a big wad of cash and laid it on the table and slid it over to his sister and said, here, I want to give this to you to cover the cost of the car repair. And of course, everybody was just amazed at this. What is our teenage son? You know, what's, what has become of him? And he explained. He said, look, I have become a Christian. And I realized that I'm a sinner and that I had debts to God, debts I couldn't pay. 
but I realize that Jesus paid those debts for me, and I'm doing this for you so you all can see, so you all can have a little picture of what that's like. And guess what? His sister became a Christian, and then his parents became Christians because of his example of Christ, of, of, of his generosity as he was seeking to follow Christ's example of generosity. That's how you do generosity. You find ways to imitate Christ's own pattern of life in your life. Well, next we see here the fellowship of generosity. Generosity generates relationships. Generosity builds community. Generosity creates and strengthens relationships. A major theme in these two chapters in 2 Corinthians is how generosity forms a fellowship between the givers and the recipients. It brings givers and receivers together. It connects them. And so Paul's taking up this collection, but in taking up the collection, he's really creating a community. He's creating a community of givers. Those who are giving to the cause feel connected with one another. He's also creating a community of those who will administer the gift so the gift can be administered with integrity and accountability. Titus is going to help him. Luke is going to help him. So there's a a community of those who administer the gift. And then it's also going to create a community between those who give and those who receive. This collection is going to connect the givers and the recipients, deepening their bond with one another. And so as these Gentile churches give to the Jewish church, these Gentile churches around the Mediterranean give to the Jewish church down down in Judea, Paul is forming the church into an international community of God's covenant people who are bound together, sharing spiritually and sharing materially in all kinds of ways. One of the key issues in the New Testament is ethnic and cultural and racial unity in Christ. How Christ brings together in himself different races, different ethnic groups through his death and resurrection and through his outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The covenant has been opened up to the nations. The time of fulfillment has come. And that means it is time for the Gentiles, as Gentiles, to come into the priestly nation, the priestly people of God, and to be fully integrated into the people of God, to have all the same privileges that the Jews would have under the reign of the Messiah. It's time for the Gentiles to come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's time for Christ to make the nations of the world His inherited possession, as Psalm 2 says. It's time for the Gentiles to come, become children of Abraham in the fullest sense. And this is what Paul's collection is all about. It's about bringing divided peoples together. It's really about manifesting what the church is, how the church is a new social order. The church is a new humanity that brings together different people groups. In in the church, people of different nationalities and ethnicities and races are reconciled to one another and made one in Christ. And this collection is to be a manifestation of their oneness. We know that our uh, own country, our own nation, has a history of racial strife and division. Well, it was at least as bad in the ancient world. 
If you go back and you look at what the ancient world was really like, you find tribal and national and imperial loyalties tended to trump everything else. Ancient cities would often have walled-off sections to keep people segregated from one another, keep different people groups segregated from one another so they wouldn't kill each other because that was a live issue. In the ancient world, most ethnic groups viewed every other ethnic group as subhuman. Not just as inferior humans, but even as subhuman. Into that world, Paul went preaching, there is neither Jew nor Gentile in Christ Jesus. It was an astounding message. It was quite unlike anything anybody had ever heard before. Unlike what any other religion or worldview had offered before. And Paul in his ministry is seeking to bring together Jew and Gentile in Christ. Paul in his letters spills a lot of ink addressing Jew and Gentile relations in the church. Because their unity was not just a side issue. Not just some kind of downstream issue from the Gospel. It was central to the Gospel itself. Part of the announcement of the Gospel was this announcement that Christ had come to unite Jew and Gentile in Himself. And again, you see how Paul's collection is very much a part of this. In Romans 15.27, as Paul is talking about this collection at the end of Romans, he says this, He says, if Gentiles have become partakers of the Jews' spiritual blessings, their duty is to minister to Jews in material blessings. Gentiles received from Jews spiritual treasures, and so Jews should receive from Gentiles material treasures. And there will be this kind of equity, this this kind of harmony between Jew and Gentiles. They contribute to one another as they give to and receive from one another. Picture Paul taking this offering collected from Gentiles, which many Jews would have considered dirty money that they wouldn't have wanted to touch, taking it down to Jerusalem and giving it to the Jewish Christians there in Judea. What an amazing picture it was of this kind of beauty. You know, there's there's prophecies in the Old Testament about Gentiles bringing their gifts of silver and gold into Jerusalem. Well, Paul's collection is probably one aspect, one way in which those prophecies come to fulfillment, one way in which those texts come to realization. This gift, this Gentile gift Paul brings to the Jewish Christians in Judea. The collection brings together Jew and Gentile. And so really the collection was a way of acting out this ethnic unity brought about by the Gospel. Paul's theology and practice perfectly dovetail. The language that Paul uses for the gift here, I think, bears all of this out. Paul's collection was a political act as much as it was a religious act. It made a socially revolutionary statement. Paul in verse 4 says of chapter 8 says, the Macedonians wanted him and his co-workers to receive their gift so they could share in his fellowship of ministering to the saints. They saw their gift as an act of fellowship as an act of community building. They saw themselves as partnering with Paul and entering into the suffering of those they were seeking to help, fellowshipping with them as well. So even at a great geographic distance, the Macedonian Christians were saying to the Jewish Christians, we are one with you. This gift brings us close. It brings us together. We're separated in space, but this gift makes us one. It webs us together. 
Chapter 8, verse 14, he describes a kind of equality or equity that will result in the body through this kind of giving. When those who have an abundance supply what others lack. When the haves share with the have-nots. And Paul even quotes from Exodus chapter 16 in in chapter 8, verse 15, which is about the manna from heaven. How, you know, the manna from heaven that God gave to the Israelites in the wilderness. Paul quotes the verse. He says, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. When the Macedonians give to the Jewish Christians, what is, what is it like? It's like manna from heaven. That's why I say it's God's own giving to the Jewish Christians through the Macedonians. This collection is manna from heaven for the Israelite, for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And as this gift is given, it shows everyone in the body, everyone in the body of Christ will be taken care of. Now, obviously, there will always be rich and poor Christians. The rest of the New Testament bears that out. Paul, for example, in 1 Timothy 6, addresses rich Christians. There's always going to be socioeconomic diversity in the church. But what you see here is that the vision of Torah, the vision of the law, really crystallized in Deuteronomy 15.4 that there would be no poor among you, that this goal is being realized in the church. We see the church should be the kind of place where we share with one another in times of crisis and hardship so no Christian ever goes hungry or goes without clothes or shelter. And know that there's at least a portion of your money when you give tithes and offerings to this church. We, we seek to distribute that money in ways that this happens in all kinds of small ways, locally and globally. And there are all kinds of ministries outside of this church, Christian ministries that make us possible for us to help locally as well as helping globally. I think it's important for us as American Christians to think about the global aspect of this because we tend to be very wealthy by global standards. And there are millions of very poor Christians in other parts of the world who in some cases lack even the bare necessities. The rule of First John is helpful here. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Let us love not in word or tongue, but in deed and in truth. In 2 Corinthians 9.12, Paul describes this service of his collection as supplying the needs of the saints which abounds to many thanksgivings to God. And here too you see the way in which this kind of collection, this kind of generosity is going to build community. When we help our fellow Christians in need, there is an explosion of thanksgiving that brings glory to God. 2 Corinthians 9.13, we find through this collection, Paul says through this collection, this ministry, they glorify God because of your liberal sharing with them. So when this gift makes it to those Jewish Christians, they're going to glorify God because you've been so generous to them. This gift is an act of worship on the part of the giver. In fact, even earlier in in chapter 9, Paul uses priestly language, the language of priestly ministry to describe this offering. He does something similar in Romans chapter 15. That's even why we collect tithes and offerings in the worship service because giving tithes and offerings is an act of worship. It's an act of worship. It brings glory to God to give. But it also leads the recipient of the gift to worship God as well by giving thanks. 
See, giving leads to thanksgiving, and that thanksgiving glorifies God. And in this way, our relationships in Christ are deepened and strengthened, and God is honored. The giver and the receiver are joined together in an act of worship. And so this kind of collection Paul is taking up, and and when we collect tithes and offerings, and when you give in worthy kinds of ways in the name of Christ, it leads to the glory of God. It's an act that glorifies God, and it leads others to glorify God as well. We are linked together through worship. Think of your tithes and offerings as war bonds. You know, bonds that would be sold in a time of war. Think of your tithes and offerings as war bonds. They serve the cause of advancing Christ's kingdom of light in overthrowing the kingdom of darkness. And of course, as you invest in the kingdom in this way, there's a payback. Those who invest in the kingdom will receive a royal and eternal dividend. And indeed, that's why Paul considers it such a privilege to give. It's why Paul quotes from Psalm 112, saying the righteousness of the man who gives to the poor will endure forever. There will be an eternal reward that comes with this kind of giving. And that's why also one of the most striking things in this passage in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is that Paul never actually commands the Corinthians to give anything. There's not a single command to give in those two whole chapters. It's one of the most remarkable things in this passage. He never actually commands the Corinthians to give to his collection. But he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to give them a command because he's given them so many reasons and so many incentives to give. He doesn't have to order them around. He doesn't have to be the boss and use his apostolic authority to say, you must give. That kind of command shouldn't be necessary when you look at all the incentives and and the motivations that Paul gives. See, generosity is simply the outflow of joy in God, which cheerfully meets the needs of others. Generosity is the outflow of our joy in God which then cheerfully meets the needs of others. And that really brings us to the last theme we'll look at here. The theme of the joy of generosity. The ultimate reason to give, really. You should give because giving makes you happy. You should give because in giving there is joy. Giving makes you happy, quite literally. Misers are miserable. The generous are joyful. Sure, we see that in our own experience time and time again. But, you know, sociology and science bear this out as well. I find this really interesting. Uh, Sociologists who have researched happiness have found consistently that the happiest people give more money away and they give more of their time away in volunteering. There was a study done by the University of Notre Dame that found the happiest people averaged volunteering six or more hours per month. And the least happy people, on average, volunteered less than 30 minutes. Less than 30 minutes of their time would they give away in a whole month. You are happier when you give. Happier when you serve. But it's not just the sociologists. It's also the scientists. The science of the human brain makes the same point. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal not too long ago that showed scientists have found that the human brain is actually hardwired for generosity. The article cites research that found when people give to causes they believe are worthy. So when a person gives to a worthy cause, the pleasure center of the brain lights up. 
You feel good when you give. When you have a worthy cause to give to, you feel good about what you've done. To just give you one, a real simple example of this, parents and grandparents know this feeling. You know this feeling every Christmas. On Christmas morning when the kids open up their gifts, you are as excited as the kids are. Because you get joy in the act of giving. You get just as much joy in giving as the kids get in receiving. Okay, that's the kind of thing that's going on here. It is satisfying to share with others. There's something deeply pleasurable and enjoyable about showing generosity. And I would just say, if you're not happy with your life, this could be a really good place to start if you want to turn things around. If you're not happy, give stuff away. Give time away. Give money away. And see what happens. See if it doesn't make you a happier person. Because it's really greed that strangles happiness. Greed murders joy. And the only antidote to greed is generosity. Generosity makes you joyful because it catches you up in something bigger than yourself. It gets you out of yourself. You can't be self-absorbed when you're giving away yourself and giving away your money and your time. Generosity leads to joy. But the real authorities on this matter, of course, are not the sociologists or the scientists. The real authorities are Jesus and Paul. Look at what they have to say. Paul quotes Jesus. We don't have this in the Gospels, but Paul quotes Jesus in Acts 20 as saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's a summary of everything we've said this morning. It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the new economy Jesus has unleashed in the world. Paul says, he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. See, that sowing, that's what you give away. That's the, that's the seed that you're scattering, those gifts that you give. And if you give bountifully, there will be a bountiful harvest. And so Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. And the giver has plenty of reasons to be cheerful. Generosity and joy go together like thunder and lightning. They just appear. They always show up together. The reality is you can't afford not to give. There is too much to be gained by being generous. There is a gift given in the giving. There is a gift given to the giver in his very act of giving. There's a blessing given to the one who seeks to be a blessing to others. That's what Paul's showing us here. We give because we are happy in God and in giving our happiness grows. The only real giver, of course, is God Himself. But when we become givers, we participate in His giving. And that's a joy. That's a privilege. Giving is not a way of trying to pay God back. God forbid we think of it that way. Giving is not a way of showing God how much we can do for Him. No, giving is a way of expressing how much God has done for us. Giving is a way of sharing in God's own giving. Being generous is a way of sharing in God's own generosity. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. For His gift The gift He gives makes us gift givers as well. Let's pray together.
Father, we do thank you for your indescribable gift, the ultimate gift of Jesus Christ. As you have given us Jesus, may we give Jesus away as well. May we give Jesus away in the money we give and in the time we give and in the possessions we have that we share and the talents we have that we share with others. Father, make us to be a generous people because you are a generous God. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. As God's royal priesthood, let us stand for prayer. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations. You will judge your people and you will have compassion on your servants. We come before you today as your people and our trust is in you. Heavenly Father, let your ears be attentive to the voice of our supplications and may we forsake foolishness and go in the way of understanding. O Lord, we pray today for the churches in our community, for Christ Church of Branchville and St. Stephen's Episcopal, Cahaba Heights Baptist and Mountain Brook Community, Cahaba Heights United Methodist and Cahaba Park Presbyterian, and the Brookwood Baptist and Philadelphia Baptist, St. Peter's Anglican, and all other churches that call you their Lord. Heavenly Father, may we work together as your earthly churches in serving those in need. May we strive to be brothers and sisters in Christ and submit to your will and not our own. And we pray, O Lord, for unity. You tell us in your word, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. O Lord, help us to move toward that goal. Heavenly Father, not only do we pray for the unity in the church, we pray for unity in our community. There are many who love to stir up strife between churches, between races, between men and women, children and adults. They follow the way of the deceiver and seek chaos. But we know that you are the Lord of all, the Lord of order. We pray, Almighty God, that you would put peace on our hearts and that the Spirit would fill us with words to speak as well as actions that would encourage unity and peace wherever we go. We especially pray for all of those affected by the recent shooting at the Galleria. You, O Lord, know what happened, and we pray that you would reveal the truth to all. We pray that the police would be honorable in all areas of investigation and that those waiting for justice to be served would be a people of peace desiring truth. We pray for the mayor and city council to be humble before you, seeking your guidance. We pray that you would bring unity out of this tragic event and remove those who are here for the sole purpose of hatred and chaos. And Heavenly Father, we also pray for our prisons and our correctional institutions. Many times they are forgotten in the midst of the latest headlines. But we know that there are many there who need your grace. Not only prisoners, but those who have become hardened over the years as guards and as administrators. We pray, O Lord, for your love to be upon them. Almighty God, we lift up to you hospitals and healthcare workers. May you protect those who strive to help the sick and injured. May your compassion be seen in the nurses and doctors, administrators, all those who serve you in that area. We pray that their words and actions would lead many to the light that is Christ. We pray for your blessings on the Advent and Christmas celebrations around the city. May we not be ashamed of our faith. We especially pray for our lessons and carol service. May it be a time of giving you the glory with readings and music, singing and fellowship. It is a glorious time of celebration, and we pray, O oh Lord, that our hearts would be filled with thankfulness, and may we be content in all things. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would be teachable in all areas, 
that our desire would be to know your word and come before you in prayer. You know what is good and right for us. May we honor you with our words and our thoughts and our deeds. Search us, O Lord, and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in us and lead us in the way of everlasting. As we look to Jesus for all things, hear us now as we pray to you the words that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.